Hello and welcome to Digfin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, share, you know, all that good stuff. Tokenization is a hot topic. I wanted to speak with someone who's not a newcomer, but someone who's been deeply involved in this. I looked up Florian Spiegel, who is founder of Evident Capital. He's been in tokenization for about seven or eight years. We talked about how it's evolved, where it's at now, and what to expect in the coming year. Florian Spiegel, welcome to Digfin Box. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again, James. Good to see you. And I'm excited to have this chat because you're one of the first people that I talked to about the subject of tokenization. Um, back when I was just getting Digfin off the ground is about the same time you and your partners were getting uh, your previous company, FinFabric, off the ground. So you were really early in this space. Uh, you've been talking about tokenization you know, for, uh, for many years now. So I thought what would be interesting is um, to maybe go back a little bit and look at the progress and the ideas of tokenization through your career, because you've been sort of working at this for so long. Uh, and I think that would give everybody a good sense of both the progress that has been made, uh, which I think is substantial now, as well as the many hurdles that still remain to getting to getting this uh, into a proper industry. So if you don't mind, I'd like to actually go back before uh, FinFabric. You were doing digital work at Credit Suisse. So talk to us a little bit about what was going on in your mind sort of at the end of that part of your career as you're looking to set up Infofabric? What was the world like? This is sort of like 2016, I think. Um, and and where, you know, what were you thinking about in terms of applying? You had already been applying digital technology, but within a very traditional context. Um, and, and so just what was going on in your head at that point? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I still remember, by the way, when we, we did that early article back in the day, <laughs> we're taking pictures on the balcony. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. I'm, I'm uh, still but... doing the same thing. My phone's better. The photos are a little bit better, but you know, the mechanics are pretty much still that. <laughs> I like that. You know, it's a very personal approach. Uh, and that makes for, you know, I think for the best reporting and stories. Um, uh, so so to, on your question, back to Credit Suisse. Essentially, what I did at Credit Suisse at the end was what was called digital private banking. And um, part of that is we did a lot of research and we had these conversations with private wealth clients. And I remember we were going through the results and some of those results were, I think they changed my perspective. That's why I'm sharing it, where it was literally a client, an older gentleman actually saying what they're missing um, as part of the service is that they we cannot tell them essentially on their phone at any given point in time how rich they are, how much money they have. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to sit in the car to the airport and check and see their number. Yeah. And and we knew we can't show them because especially Credit Suisse, like many banks, very uh, inorganically grown for some time. A lot of systems in a way duct taped together uh, the typical bank story. And then it's difficult to build a really uh, convincing digital proposition on top. Um, so that was the, the the corporate view of that. But overall, I saw, okay, um, fintech, and those were the fintech days, is going to change everything. And 
and this was probably the impetus for me to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave uh, the corporate environment. I'm gonna set up my own shop and follow this opportunity. And you know this as well as I know. Um, those were in a way the heydays also of of early fintech in Hong Kong, where a lot of things started, including the fintech association, which yeah. I was part of. And this is where we also started FinFabric. And on the tokenization front, how that came in early on was really looking at where is the most significant white space? So where are the most significant inefficiencies? And you know, where did we not see any change, essentially? And that still is to this day more the asset management space than basically any other asset class. So if you look at um, asset management broadly or alternative assets more specifically, we haven't really seen much innovation and it's way behind the curve of other segments in uh, in finance, I would say. And so that's how we how we set out. Um, yeah, and that was really the start of, of that journey for me in tokenization. What part of asset management when you talk about no innovation? So obviously funds themselves, quant funds, high frequency trading funds, uh, a lot of hedge funds are using um, AI. They're using a lot of uh, sophisticated tools in how they trade. Um, uh, a lot of digitization, electronification of those markets. Um, and we've also seen the rise of some platforms that allow the um, breaking down of, of say, private equity funds into smaller digestible amounts so that, say, wealthy families can start to get access to these things. So we are seeing sort of some changes there. And of course, in the fund space for a while, I guess the big change was really the ETF and the rise of the uh, of exchange traded products. So it's not that there's not been no innovation, but um, but the the fee structure, the the way that the, the culture of the asset management industry, that certainly is the same, as far as I can tell. I've been covering asset management since a very long time. So um, so where where are the points that you see the the least movement or where there's the greatest inefficiencies? Yeah, so we've definitely seen a lot of uh, innovation on the product front. Um, and also a lot of use of technology. So what, what I'm referring to is more, how are how is the, the structure managed, you know, the administration of that structure? Um, and then how do you distribute that as an investment product? So how does distribution work? And, and what holds all of that together? Mm -hmm. And we haven't really seen much innovation there. This is still, still largely, in worst case, paper-based. Right. Yeah. If you invest in a fund, there's, there's still subscription documents and a lot of them are paper based or the next best version, which is just the same documents in PDF. Um, but in my mind, not much better. But um, that limits in a way uh, the access to that asset class. And that also drives costs of, of, of running these assets. And that just, in my mind, stifles innovation. So where tokenization comes in, and because the question is also why do you need tokenization, it's really there, is running these structures much more efficiently, which then allows you um, to provide broader access to that asset class. Of course, you have other benefits as well, such as transparency. Um, but for me, in the end, it's about these two things, efficiency and then distribution. So opening up this asset class to more investors. As you said, there certainly has been progress especially on uh, essentially creating feeder fund vehicles that uh, pool capital and then participate in the underlying funds. Um, but to your point, this is still limited still, I think, to a, a pretty 
uh, rarefied group uh, in the grand scheme of things. And in the end, uh, these assets, in my mind, should be accessible to the average investor, really. Everyone should have that in their portfolio. Where do you see that compression of efficiency coming from? Like, who are the benefits? Who, who will benefit the most? Who stands to lose the most business if this wave of tokenization makes itself felt? Makes itself felt? The, so the, the parties that will benefit the most are the investors. It is you and I getting access to more interesting assets, uh, as we should, and being able to build truly diversified portfolios, which today, let's be honest, is not really possible for most investors. So that's very clearly the side of uh, the people who benefit. Um, the losers will be the many intermediaries that are in the middle today. You have many steps, actually, if you think about the distribution side, especially global distribution of, uh, let's say, an alternative assets product or a single asset um, that, again, they slow things down, increase the costs with every step. And this is just not how things should work and have to work anymore today. So, um, you know, if I were a funder admin, for example, today, I would think hard about how can I build efficiencies? What is the role of digitalization here? Um, in my mind, elements like fund administration, fund accounting are basically rules and math. So mm -hmm. they lend themselves very well to digitalization in a broader sense and specifically to smart contracts where um, there's not, there's no room for interpretation really, and actually no room for error either. So it's in my mind, not ideal for humans, you know, it's boring right. work. We make mistakes. We're messy. It's much better for machines to do that. And this, I feel is where things are clearly headed. Is it necessary to use blockchain based technology to enable those changes? Um, no, not for the first steps, as we've seen, you know, you have these platforms that are essentially fund aggregators and, and enable investment into, let's say, PE funds, for example, very successfully. Um, but if you think a little bit further into the future, if you want to build truly global markets and also work on uh, liquidity, for example, in these markets, uh, it's just a more efficient approach to use a blockchain for that. Um, one reason for that is it's a very efficient system of record. And so keeping records in a in a in an immutable way and in a, a way that is independently verifiable matters a lot in this, especially if you talk about efficiency. So to take an auditor, the audit partners that we work with, for them, they can see doing this much more efficiently at lower cost because it's higher quality standardized data across the entire life cycle of the asset. Now you can cover certain elements of that, of course, in a fast centralized database. And we looked at this, you know, when evidence started, it was yeah. completely open, despite my history with everything. We said, okay, let's look at what is the best technical approach. So if you take everything into account uh, from creating the asset, managing it, its life cycle to distributing it, and then managing a, a secondary market or transactions in this asset, a blockchain is the ideal technology for that. And um, I think this will be one of the use cases that really matter and make a difference also because it's applied to an already sizable traditional industry. And in the end, it's a, it's a modern infrastructure that we bring to that industry. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit before we get into some of that nitty gritty. Yeah. What was the, what were the lessons that you learned at FinFabric? Obviously a startup early, maybe a little too early, um, but <laughs> you know, talk us through a little bit of, give us a couple of war stories there and what you learned and <laughs> What was your thinking when you decided to transition to a new business? 
Well, uh, so many lessons. We need three podcasts for that. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and primarily on, on the personal level, right? Uh, lessons that you learn as a leader and the mistakes you make and the strategic um, confusions that you have. And uh, But the upside of that is you take that and you apply it to the next thing as an entrepreneur. Um, and hopefully you, you, you do better the next time around. Um, so I think specifically in this context of our conversation also at Evidence, certainly timing is very important. Mm. And your idea, your technology doesn't matter. No one cares, in fact, if you have wrong timing, because then it's just a fancy technology that has no use case and doesn't solve any any problem. Uh, the people are willing to pay for are getting solved. Right. And that was certainly the case for us. Um, and then just from an entrepreneur's perspective, if you're, you're building something that is really uh, changing things on an infrastructure level, you need to have time. You need to have time to be eventually right. And so uh, that was another challenge where, you know, we, we had to shift also our business model and do, do different things to generate revenue. Uh, where in hindsight, if you had just stuck with the original ideas, some of the ones that we worked on, that would have been much better. So yeah, you, you learn from that. Uh, Evident has you know, a, a multi-year runway because I know we want to be strategic about this. Um, uh, especially in times like these, you want to be very calm and relaxed and just follow your path. Don't change the vision, the mission, maybe pivot on the, on the implementation of it. And that's certainly very different how I do things today. Um, but overall, maybe as a last uh, comment on that, um, that was a very rewarding journey, particularly mm -hmm. for the people that I worked with there and, and the, the things you learn, the memories you keep, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to miss it. And it's been the foundation of of what we do today. A lot of the ideas, the conversations, as you know, yeah. um, are now becoming a reality. So, uh, uh, you know, what's different today certainly is the environment and the institutional demand for this type of solutions. Yeah. So, what's the kind of the the thesis for Evident, um, and what makes it different than what you've been doing before? Well, Evident at its core is an investment platform alternative assets. So we've been in the licensing process with the SFC, um, and I think we're, we're pretty close there, uh, so that we can also actively distribute and place assets uh, with investors. So we, we can be that, in essence, broker-dealer uh, type of market participant. And before that, we are also essentially an infrastructure. We are a, a, a tokenization on-ramp that creates a digital representation of rights of assets and then allows the issue of these assets to more efficiently reach their own investor network. So purely um, as an infrastructure play, and we're adding a distribution side uh, that that will be 2024 for us. So uh, the end of this year and beginning of next year, we will launch into really publicly also making these assets uh, accessible to a broader group of investors and then live up to that mission of, of really building more global capital bridges in the alternative asset space, because as we all know, this today uh, exists very much in closed off circles and networks, um, you know, a lot on WeChat, WhatsApp, email groups, yeah. um, the usual. So I think it's an opportunity to open that up and make that more transparent, really lifted on a digital level, like we've seen with, with e-commerce, frankly. Uh, I think there's a, a great opportunity there. When we talk about blockchain, are we talking about uh, permissioned or permissionless? We're talking about public or private. What's yeah. going to work for the tokenization world? 
It's a great question. And it was one, connecting back to your question earlier, it was one of the, um, I wouldn't say confusions, but one of the, 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 the directions we took in my last company um, where we, we were looking primarily into permissioned and private uh, blockchain systems. But in the end, that's just so a clubs, type basically. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just a different kind of database uh, and you lose a lot of the benefits in my view and the long-term benefits. I still believe in this element of decentralization in the sense of taking out middlemen. Um, and and you can, you only get that in permissionless public uh, infrastructure. So I'm, I'm, I'm very strong beliefs on that. So from the beginning, as we started building, uh, we built on, on permissionless and open systems and Already now we're seeing the partnerships that we're forming. Uh, you know, it's this this element, this argument of composability, where others have uh, can very easily connect to what we built, uh, and then that allows us to to grow faster in the end, uh, forming these partnerships. All the banks are working on their own tokenization platforms. I believe these are still their own walled gardens, essentially, at yep. least today. Um, so, if we're talking about real world assets and we're talking about financial institutions. Uh, what has to happen for, I guess, your counterparties, banks, asset managers, to be willing to play in the public blockchain space, um, either where they don't control it, uh, they're in the mix with other participants, which of course is good for liquidity. But, but in sense of that, you, you know, the the fears, legitimate fears they have around being able to be compliant, uh, to, and and also to, from their own point of view, to make sure that they're also uh, making money. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. Uh, we need to see the use cases emerge where uh, essentially the, the business case is compelling for large institutions to operate in, in open ecosystems. But to me, this is just a question of time. These things, and we've seen the frenzy in crypto, I think everything moved very fast, too fast, and a lot of speculation, which is normal and healthy, uh, in mm -hmm. my view, in, in this kind of development. Um, as we go into broader distribution, into what you know, what you could call institutional recomposition, where institutions are starting to get into this, the regulators are catching up to it, things inevitably slow down, and that's a good thing. And so this will take time, but to me, the direction of travel is is very clear. There will be much more benefit of breaking down those walled gardens, at least in certain areas, and collaborate with others and and build more global markets, particularly. If you think about the alternative asset space, then uh, then there will be downsides, and then that equation will shift. Right now, we're not there yet, uh, right. so it's 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 just still better and easier and more familiar, and probably from a business model better to just follow the the old approach and maybe put in some modern technology. But you do see players, you know, take JP Morgan, uh, for example, take a lot about talk a lot about. Uh, the opportunity in tokenizing real world assets for exactly that, for essentially creating much more well diversified portfolios, doing this much more efficiently. And in the end, to me, that also means, you know, being open and connecting with others to really get uh, the full benefit of that. Sometimes both in terms of the product set, as well as, I guess, the, the marketplace, the ecosystem, primary, secondary markets. I feel like with this, with this sort of change that people are talking about, we seem to veer between boiling the ocean, which is maybe some of the problems you had in your first go at this, where you're trying to do like change everything all at once, uh, exactly. because because you need to have everything kind of change for for the benefits really to kick in, right? Yeah. At the same yeah. time, maybe it's go very niche 
and find a particular use case, either a particular product or a particular set of people, and then start small, but just make it work. Yeah. Where are we between that? I mean, is, what, uh, it, it feels like we, I, when I talk to people, I feel like it's, I, I'm still veering between these extremes in terms of, of go to market mm -hmm. strategy and neither one of them has yet to click. Yeah, absolutely. And there is, there is this challenge that you think you have to replace all the, the parts for the whole thing to make sense. But to me, that never works because mm -hmm. you can't, things will continue to evolve and change. So you can't replace everything at once, especially not as a, as a small uh, young player, it doesn't work. So it's all about identifying the, the niche, as you said, that you can create an end-to-end -end new solution um, and then grow from there, expand from there. So in our case, it has been really working with, with mid-sized issuers, working with uh, you know, professional investors only, high net worth individuals, family offices on the investor side, uh, and not thinking about retail or, yeah. or broader access yet. Because again, hypothesis that this will happen automatically over time anyways, plus it is primarily a regulatory question. In my view, it's a um, technology-wise, product-wise, uh, issuer appetite-wise, we're already there. But um, you know the, the proper frameworks need to follow for that. And I understand, you know, also regulators, they need to take it step by step. And in, in the grand scheme of things, we will see that happening. But you need to start with something that is compelling end to end, but is, is probably not the biggest, uh, the all encompassing use case, and then just expand from there. And be able to keep that runway uh, yeah. from shut from closing in on you too, too, too well, soon. It's closing in every day, you know, yeah. every day it's a little less. But uh, you know we've we've made revenue and um, you know we've seen we we have a very healthy pipeline as well so I'm quite confident on that. Um, but yeah, you don't want to be nervous about that runway getting shorter because that doesn't help uh, with being strategic and, and sticking with it and again step by step growing that footprint. How since maybe you've started with with evident how have you seen differences or changes in the relationship between uh, let's say the unregulated crypto space, crypto native versus the, let's say if, if the DLT tokenization, bringing in the TradFi element. Are these still chalk and cheese or are we seeing these two things, which often seem to talk in parallel, you know, completely separately. Are we seeing some kind of convergence between these two worlds? Yeah, it's, it depends on who you ask. If you ask me, we'll see a convergence. Uh, that's that has been my experience. And we see it from both sides, which is, I feel the interesting aspect of it. If you take the TradFi side, there's great interest in adopting uh, innovation that came out of this lab or speculative lab that we saw in crypto for a long time with, again, in the nature of an experimental lab, 99% of things, maybe not having long-term value, but they needed to be tried to find out. But there is some things in there that actually make sense. If you think about um, certain elements of decentralization um, in, for example, settling trades, right? Mm -hmm. If you take out all the parties in the middle, you settle peer-to-peer, wallet-to-wallet. That's something that we have built into our platform already. And so you have real-time settlement of transactions in alternative assets. And that goes that goes back to what the innovation in the crypto space. Um, you take um, ideas around identity and how we manage identity. For me, that's the next big topic where again, major innovation will come out of the, the broader crypto Web3 space that in the end, 
I think there will be value in this being adopted in a TradFi area. It makes no sense that my bank should hold my passport picture forever and has all these data about me um, when I can manage this myself and I just, you know, disclose it on an as needed basis. Yeah. This, I think this, this, no one will say this, this is nonsense. So if you take the other side of this, um, uh, the interest that we've seen from the crypto space uh, is in product, you know, because uh, a lot of the asset prices were driven by speculation. Again, totally normal, totally needed to, to attract that speculative capital, but that phase is over. So if you look at DeFi lending, for example, today, there's a great interest in real world assets because, you know, I look at the, the, the columns on DeFi land and overviews. There's a huge, for me, a huge uh, amount of liquidations there. So it doesn't speak to the asset quality. And, and you know, the assets that we work on, I know that they are much higher quality than that. They, they would fit perfectly to models like DeFi lending in my mind. These are income producing assets. They have decent uh, APYs. So that expectation also has come down, of course. And, and so, I think real world assets as a as a product in a crypto space is something that um, certainly is driving some interest. And yeah. then, you know, I think that will continue. You will see this conversion. But if you think about DeFi, also because of regulatory reasons, at least for the foreseeable future, it will run in its own parallel world because it's very hard to integrate that in a yeah. licensed setup uh, and 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 still run, you know. Yeah. Uh, a proper DeFi uh, platform. It, yeah, it seems to me philosophically, the, the big change, Florian, is that um, if you're a, a bank, you are yeah. used to dealing with basically product silos and accounts. I can go to that bank and I might be a, a savings account or a checking account, or I might be a lending client, but it's different account. Whereas with a wallet, you should, in theory, be able to take that wallet to multiple institutions it can handle multiple types of assets and that's you, right? So how do you see, so I think we can all see as users uh, and as, you know, as entrepreneurs, you can see the benefit of, of a wallet system, why people would like that provided that that digital ID side works, but from the bank, which is so used to an account-based system, um, you know, do you see them being able to manage this transition, maybe operate in parallel for a while, if, if, need, if that's the way it's going to be? Um, or, you know, is this something they can actually handle quite simply um, and, and they're on top of it, or will this be a challenge for them? Uh, well, change on, on that large scale is always a challenge, but uh, absolutely that can be handled. And I can take again evident as an example how we already do this today. So our, our wallets, you can choose to have a non-custodial wallet on evident. So again, we give you all the warnings. We can help you if you lose the private keys, but that's your wallet. Of course, we know that this is your wallet, so we can always connect it to your identity as a user. Um, uh, but why? So why don't you just keep your wallet and close your account with Evident? Well, we have to work very hard to provide value-adding services. For example, if you invest into an asset uh, that is income-producing, we take care of the, the monthly dividend or whatever it is actually arriving in your wallet reliably every time. Uh, or that you see your portfolio, you can track how you're doing with your investments. These are services we provide so that users want to have an account on our platform. So we don't try to lock them in and say, oh, uh, if you want any of this, you need to have this account or this wallet with us and this is ours. I think, again, and, and that's part of the DeFi spirit to some extent of decentralization that 
my assets are my assets as a user. I should have control over it. And there is still a significant role of centralized parties like a bank to play because in the end, I trust that counterparty, right? I, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe in completely trustless systems for everything in finance. Um, I think as fundamentally as human beings, we wanna have a trusted counterparty. And that role you know, is, will still be largely fulfilled by uh, institutions. And, and so it's really rethinking the service model much more than um, completely changing everything. But we'll see this elements, I think, of, of let's say decentralization uh, being adopted where it makes sense and where the end user prefers it. Yeah. So last question for you, Florian, before we uh, wrap up, uh, we talked a little bit about runway. You said you're making sure that, you know, you don't have to lose sleep over that particular question. So what's the funding right now for your business? Um, will you be needing to tap uh, the markets through either tokenization, ICO stuff or through VC or, you know, just what, what's the, uh, the outlook for you guys? So as a platform, we were very traditional. So uh, we did a, a essentially a pre-seed round, uh, but I think a sizable pre-seed round that uh, gave us that multi-year runway and most of the money is still in the bank. Uh, so the next fundraise will be traditional, so not on a token because that's just the nature of our platform. And um, it will be more about strategic partners. So the partners that we work with um, in the traditional finance uh, side that ideally are also then stakeholders in the company. So it's a lot more about who are on your who is on your cap table, who mm-hmm. who is that group, um, than about the capital side of it. Um, but for us, yeah, of course, you always watch runway and you do your budgets, you plan out. The company's growing, so that's probably a topic for us um, around the end of next year, or beginning of twenty five, to look into that. Also, because the macro environment, uh, I expect, will be. A better one uh, again in the let's say VC uh, space with rates coming down mid next year and next year latest I think so it will be a better time as well. Okay, good. Well, let's uh, we'll have to circle back um, end of uh, twenty four to see how how it's all played out. But in the yeah. meantime, Florian, delighted yeah. to have you. Thank you so much for joining me on Digfin Vox. Thanks for having me again. <laughs>